Hey, baby, this is Stevie Van Zandt. You are listening to everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. It's the drumming, Kenneth. We've talked about Ringo's feel. He was left-handed playing right-handed. There's something unique about it. I know that there was a few uh, professional uh, session guys here and there, but... Ringo's terrific. And when I met him, I said, hey, how are your, how are your paradiddles? Which is a, a drum rudiment, you know? And he said, hey, I'm still working on them, mate. And I said, so am I. <laughs> Today's guest is John Densmore, an American musician, songwriter, author, and actor. You probably know him best as the drummer for The Doors. He appeared on every recording made by the group with his unique drumming style inspired by jazz, world music, and rock and roll. The honors that he shares with the other Doors include a Grammy Award for Lifetime Achievement, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Dinsmore has also worked in the performing arts as a dancer and actor, and written successfully as both a playwright and the author of two books about the Doors. In 1984, At La Mama Theater in New York, he made his stage acting debut in Skins, a one-act play he had written. In 1985, he won the L.A. Weekly Theater Award for music with Methuselah, directed by Tim Robbins. The play Rounds, which he co-produced, won the NAACP Award for Theater in 1987. In 1988, he played a feature role in Band Dreams and Bebop at the Gene Donarski Theater. He developed and performed a one-man piece from the Donald Barthame short story, The King of Jazz, at the Wallenboyd Theater in 1989. With Adam Ant, he co-produced Bebop Alula at Theater Theater in 1992. He has acted in numerous television shows, most memorably in such programs as Square Pegs and Beverly Hills 90210. In his latest book, The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians, John explores his relationship with artists and performers in a spellbinding tale. Welcome, John Densmore. Looking back on the 1960s and those heady days of pop music, it's really quite remarkable how your journey with The Doors mirrored that of The Beatles, right? It's interesting that uh, back in the mid-60s, The Doors and The Beatles were both experimenting with then legal psychedelics and then both of us uh sort of thought um 
Well, this is a little shattering on the nervous system. Maybe meditation is the way to go. And we both stumbled into Maharishi. And, you know, this is before Internet. There was no uh, talking back and forth or anything. So uh, there's some kind of uh, Jungian archetypal undercurrents going global here. When you think about those two, and I use this, you know, not judge, non-judgmentally, but when you talk about those two kind of phases, it's interesting how you went on one search and then another. Do you ever think about it in that way? Well, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics kind of open up the mind. Uh, and then meditation is uh, obviously a longer route, <laughs> much subtler. Uh, you know, meditate for years. Um, you know, it, what what's, was unfortunate was that the culture went on to cocaine. I mean, even Jim Morrison thought, man, that's a heavy drug like heroin, isn't it? And then heroin became popular. Crazy. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it goes. Well, one another way I see your stories uh, – sharing a very important similarity is when I look at just about any other uh, musical fusion at the time, you, your two bands are stand to me a head and shoulders above everybody else in creating a kind of evolving body of work. Kenneth, Kenneth, I'm feeling helium going up into my skull. Oh, good. I hope it's good helium. Helium, meaning, meaning your flattery is getting me high. Well, it's interesting. So we get exposed to meditation, and then that introduces us to uh, Indian culture and uh, Ravi Shankar, and the Beatles are doing exactly the same thing. And we aren't talking to each other about it. And then uh, our music and their music, George in particular, gets kind of dipped in curry sauce it seeps into some of our stuff and theirs well this next question will no no doubt result in another kind of helium injection but uh, you know when you look at the beatles work and yours this is an evolving body of art no different from a poet or a painter or a novelist uh, what have you and that really sets you apart from your peers what was it then that drove you uh, to create such a lasting body of work. Yeah, um, at what we're searching. Uh, my book is called The Seekers, and I think everybody are seekers to varying degrees. And, uh, you know, we, like our fourth album, Soft Parade, we put, we put strings and horns on. We were trying to make Sgt. Pepper, and we got some flack for that. But, you know, Touch Me was still number one. But we had talked about trying that even before we got a record deal. And I'm sure the Beatles were like, well, let's, let's see what, where this goes. And then after the soft parade, that got us back to L.A. Woman in our sort of bluesy garage sound. So that's, that's the road you take. You're experimenting. You're curious. And hopefully the audience follows you. Well, you know, when you look back, though, if I could stay on this body of work idea for a moment, you know, when I hear their satanic majesty's request, that feels derivative to me of Sgt. Pepper. Um, the, the soft array doesn't, and if it is, it's not in the same way. 
I mean, I guess there's more originality to it. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I only say that because uh, George actually showed up to the sessions and said, wow, this looks like Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> All these string and horn players. Well, and in that case, you know, you were just choosing to augment your music in a similar way, which did wonders for for the genre. I, I love your story it, for so many reasons. Uh, one, uh, because there is no genre that causes you fear. <laughs> no, seriously, whether it's uh, dance or film or uh, prose or acting, uh, certainly uh, not drumming or, or being a musician. Um, I, 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 I love that, you know, that the doors were one stage of your life, but they certainly weren't at all a place you were going to stop at. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, let me break it down. I, I didn't really, uh, after the downside of a giant peak like the doors, uh, you know, some people, it's so steep, they, you know, get into drugs and alcohol. And, and uh, I stumbled into uh, drumming for a dance company. I didn't really dance. But I realized, I, oh, I like accompanying artists, no matter who it is. And then I went into acting class and and it was so scared in front of 12 people, more than 12,000 at Madison Square Garden. Uh, I thought, this will keep me out of trouble for a while. And that led me to writing. I wanted to write my own words. And it's funny, Kenneth, I, I wrote uh, Writers on the Storm. It was a New York Times bestseller. I still felt uncomfortable saying I was a writer. I knew I was a musician. But after a few more years of articles, uh, and then I went, yeah, okay, I have another avenue of creativity. When you, what do you like about going into the, the writerly world? What, what, what keeps you coming back and, and having you think maybe you'll go back again? Well, I don't have to depend on crazy musicians. That's a win right there. Uh-huh. The length of a sentence maybe is a musical question. Like if it's short, then it's percussive. And if it's long, it's melodic or too long and you better edit. And so uh, I kind of look at it that way. It's musical to me. You know, I, I, I read a paragraph I wrote and it either sings or I got to work on it more. It definitely has a sound and a cadence. That's for sure. And it's, uh, you know, personally, I like disappearing into the world of the writing because you kind of have your own little uh, universe that belongs to you. Now, I'm really glad you brought that up because another thing I dip into in this new book, The Seekers, yes, it's about icons that are famous that fed me and some that are not famous, but you can dip into that world the same as these famous people even if you're playing your piano in your closet and nobody hears it or you're painting and nobody sees it, it's still kind of a practice making time to go into the zone of art. And art is like medicine for your soul. And during these crazy times, boy, if you get a little of that in every day, we'll all make it through this. And it belongs to you, this, this place you're building, whether the world sees it or just you and your family or just you. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, tell me um, uh, if you could elaborate on the idea of us being uh, human beings, being seekers, 
I think the folks would love to learn more about that. Well, we're all kind of yearning. I mean, even Bob Dylan was asked, uh, I put this in the conclusion, Hurricane Carter, he wrote the song Hurricane about him, and he was uh, in jail, um, uh, and uh, uh, Bob's song helped him get out of jail because he was wrongfully accused, and he asked Bob, what are you searching for? What are you, what, what are you, and you're always questioning, and, and Bob said, Oh, the Holy Grail. In other words, I'm not going to find it. But it's the path. That's the deal. It's great to have giant concerts where everybody worships you. But for me, uh, yeah, I've had that. But I also hope to get back to playing drums behind poets in a club or something. Because if if you're in the moment with the audience, the, the same kind of uh, healing occurs does that make sense it does and and you know i i you gave an image a moment ago of the person who after they've had their peak whatever it is and they turn to drink for example um or if or worse maybe they become uh duplicative and just try to recreate their past uh in a way they've stopped seeking (laughs) right if you use the metaphor You know, Jim and Janice are cautionary tales. They're two very creative people. And in their case, both of them had uh, self-destruction and creativity in the same package. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I think Picasso lived to 90, so he wasn't in that. But Van Gogh. Van Gogh, yeah, troubled. Uh, But as time has gone on, I've been able to accept that Jim was supposed to be a quick shooting star. And and my road is much longer. And uh, it's good to have different examples of how to do this. Do you think when you you think that then, it's not that it was a destiny, but (laughs) right, I, I don't know if, if that's how you see it, but I mean, was there there anything that could have helped him make it to 30? (laughs) Meditation, maybe. You know, I've always asked if Jim was around today, would he be clean and sober? And I always used to say, no, no, no. He's just like a kamikaze drunk. And now I'm the last few years. I, you know, uh, I know a lot of really cool people that are clean and sober and then there's examples like Eric Clapton and Eminem. And yeah, he, if he was around now, sure, it's a different time. We'll be back in a moment with more from John Dinsmore after these messages. We're back with John Dinsmore. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you got your start in music to begin with. If I remember correctly, and I've studied you, I believe it was even playing a reed instrument, right? Yeah, well... Going way back, I start the first chapter of The Seekers with my mom because she uh, obliged me with piano lessons that I wanted and tolerated drums in the living room. And uh, I just was crazy for music. And so then I wanted to play any instrument. I knew that they didn't have a piano in the band or orchestra. So I chose clarinet. 
and I had braces at the time, and the orthodontist said, no, no, you cannot play that instrument. That will push your teeth out. We're trying to push them back. I said, okay, uh, uh, how about drums? And the rest is, you know, I owe my whole career to the dentist, I guess. Yeah. You know, not many people say that. <laughs> but let's be fair, you weren't some scratch drummer. You became uh, a true student of the drums. I learned uh, how to play each part, the, the, in timpani in the orchestra and bass drum and cymbals all separate. And then they're trapped t together. The slang jazz version for the drum kit is traps. And, uh, you know, I took private lessons. It's interesting. I think I write in this book, pretty sure, uh, that technique is not the be-all, end-all. You can have too much and get stuck or rigid or, or, or noodle too much, showing off with your uh, speed. But you've got to get enough technique to get across whatever your unique message is. Like I write about uh, punk, Lou Reed, and, you know, music was sort of secondary, but they had a message. They had these gritty lyrics and played guitars like they were drums. And, uh, you know, you got to find your, your unique road and uh, just get enough technique to do it. In so many ways, that is the secret to the musician's life, especially the drummer, right? Technique, learning a vast amount of styles and, and creating a kind of range for yourself. And I note in your book, Seekers, that uh, you explore this with some depth. Yeah, well, if you notice uh, all these uh, icons in this book, it's so diverse, it's crazy. I've got jazz musicians, I've got classical conductors, uh, country music, Willie Nelson. Um, if you have a real, if you're, if you allow yourself to be influenced by a broad musical palette, you're not going to copy their genre, but it, it, it affects you. Just as Gustavo Dudamel, the conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic, he's aware of, of salsa and Led Zeppelin. And, uh, you know, I know it influences his conducting. Well, and, and I mean, you can hear all sorts of flavors inside your work with the Doors. There's what jazz, and I hear some blues, and uh, you name it. <laughs> There's even honky tonk at one point, right? Yeah, well, uh, we're uh, like an American gumbo. We got uh, Robbie with flamenco and folk, and Ray's got blues, Chicago blues, and and classical, da 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 da, da that Bach-like intro and in light my fire, and I got the jazz, and Jim has all the words on the planet, so we were a melting plot, uh, melting pot, not plot, not not unlike our country. So when was it um, on the Beatles side of the story? When was, when did you make your discovery of of those guys? Well, that's a good one. Um, I'm aware of the 50s rockers, you know, Chuck Berry and Elvis and everything, but I'm a jazz buff. I'm a bit of a aloof, you know, jazz is the higher art form. And then I see these mop tops on the Ed Sullivan show, and I, I don't know what's going on here, but I notice the melodies are infectious. They know how to write songs, and that's the key. Like I was saying to Willie Nelson, you know, it doesn't matter 
if it's country or pop or heavy metal, the wedding between the lyric, the way it fits with the melody, oh, that's the key to great songs. And so these guys then uh, create this British invasion. And um, by but that point, you're already a professional drummer, right? Yeah, I was playing uh, <laughs> weddings, bar mitzvahs, uh, clubs, whatever. But we did uh, love the Stones in the early days. And uh, it's uh, interesting how they, the British invasion, they look like uh, with their long hair and ruffled shirts, like they were uh, uh, Beethoven and Mozart, you know? <laughs> or troubadours or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you recall uh, any albums that, as you began making albums with the Doors, that influenced you? records you'd go to. I know when the Beatles were touring uh, in 64 and 65, they listened to almost nothing but Dylan. <laughs> what what kind of things did you guys listen to? Uh, the Dylan, the Stones, the Beatles, every time they put out an album, we just gobble it up, you know? And then there was the psychedelic West Coast sound like uh, Jefferson Airplane and uh, Country Joe and uh, whoever else. The Birds, yeah, all of it. Yeah, and again, though, um, and here's more helium. I'm sorry, but <laughs> at a certain point, while you may be part of that admixture, it there's something strikingly original. And again, that's why I think your work, like the Beatles, there's this kind of it sets itself apart in a certain way. Um, I was listening to L.A. Woman just last week. The record, the album. There's so many textures on that. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like a revolver or, or the white album, you know, you go to all these other places, these different kinds of places when you listen to it. Oh, I appreciate that. Revolver is terrific. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's the drumming, Kenneth. Seringo. Oh, he's wonderful. Jim Keltner, a great session drummer played with the Wilburys and, uh, everybody, Dylan, whatever. We've talked about Ringo's feel. He, he's, he's, he was left-handed playing right-handed. There's something unique about it. You know? I know that there was a few uh, professional uh, session guys here and there, but uh, Ringo's terrific. And when I met him, I said, hey, how are your, how are your paradiddles? Which is a, a drum rudiment, you know. And he said, hey, I'm still working on them, mate. And I said, so am I. <laughs> you know, like you, his is a style I can pick out. Of course, it helps that they're inside Beatles and Doors songs, respectively. But, um, you know, Ringo has that kind of, uh, I mean, some would say it's its almost too casual. You know, that playing he does, say, in the coda to Strawberry Fields Forever, where it almost has a lazy feel to it. And then there's you with the rider symbol. Uh, and the way you and the deft choices of where you play a fill. Um, I don't know that rock drummers before then had had necessarily much of an identity. Well, maybe not. Um, I think I write about this. Maybe this is in my second self-centered memoir. I'm not sure. Uh, that for drummers, one beat is very long. I, Ringo does a rap about this. If you play on the front of the, meaning the space between one beat and the next beat that's coming. If you pray, play on the front of it, it's, it, it feels kind of polka, military. If you play on the back of it, 
it feels like the blues. And that's really important, the feeling. Uh, I don't think people realize that drummers, uh, it's, well, um, in the chapter on Elvin Jones, John Coltrane's drummer, I quote Thelonious Monk, who gives the 10 notes to make you a good musician. And the very first note is you have to have a good sense of time, especially if you're not the drummer. Whoa, that's brilliant. Because, you know, you can solo like crazy on sax or guitar. If you don't have the internal metronome, no one's going to care. George Martin was essential, of course, uh, to to the Beatles being on their outrageous trajectory. Um, did you? Our, our, our engineer, uh, Bruce Botnick, uh, done all our records, knows George, met him. He's our George Martin, and he oversees, you know, the new technology that comes in, CDs, streaming, whatever it is. He makes sure we are uh, up to date on the best sound possible. And, you know, can't do without him. He's the fifth door. <laughs> what about Paul Rothschild? Paul Rothschild was really great, and he taught us how to make records, you know. But he got a little dictatorial in the middle period, and that's when we broke away, and we produced L.A. Woman with Bruce and us in control. And we were ready because we knew we made a lot of records. We know how to do it. And we purposely um, only went for a few takes. I was telling Ray how Miles Davis uh, was asked about this bad trumpet note in uh, live at Carnegie Hall or something. And he said, leave it there. It feels good. So that's what we were up to. Do you feel in a lot of ways like L.A. Woman's your, the strongest record? Well, it's one of my faves. I also like uh, Strange Days quite a bit because we were, we were nervous on the first album. We'd never been in the studio. And, it, you know, it turned out rather good. Light My Fire was number one for 26 weeks. And, Kenneth, it's been downhill ever since. But Strange Days, we were having fun, and we were more relaxed in the studio and, and experimenting with synthesizers. And, you know, so I like that one. What would Botnick do to help you, uh, to help make it into a record? Well, I mean, he started out as a teenager uh, engineering with Phil Spector and the, the Supremes. And, you know, he has done everybody. So he, he just knows how to uh, get a good sound. Like I went, I write about a chapter on Emil Richards, a wonderful percussionist. And I went to a session for Jerry Goldsmith, a big film uh, score composer. And there was 100 musicians. And I said, Bruce, you've only got four microphones out here. You put more on my drums. And he said, yeah, but if you put them in the right place. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's true. He was just on the cutting edge of uh, new sounds and uh, – we did uh, Strange Days. We did some, because of the Beatles, we did some backward tracks where Ray would play the chord changes of uh, a song and then we'd turn it around and play it backwards and it sounded like some weird percussion instrument, but it was playing the chord changes. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. 
But that stuff was pretty meticulous at the time too, right? To be able to pull that off? Very, because we had tape and we were cutting. It was not digital. You couldn't move things around like you can now. Although George Harrison said that that would probably good for the Beatles because they would have had too many ideas and too many outlets for them. That maybe in a sense, right, being four track and later eight really helped them to stay contained. Yeah, exactly. And we recorded uh, Morrison Hotel, on, which is our fifth album, on 16 track. And L.A. Woman, we wanted to do it in our rehearsal room just to be really comfortable. And Bruce said, the, the, the machines won't fit in here. We'll have to go back to 8-track. And we did. And we denied technology. And it forced us, like George was saying, to, to really only put on the tape what we needed. Harrison seems to have been particularly important to you uh, among all the Beatles. I, I quote George, you know, in the Ray, Man, I think it's in the Ray Manzarek chapter, uh, having lost Ray. And, and George was talking about when he had lost John. And he was saying how, well, if you had a, a special relationship with someone and you can't continue that after they've died, then what, how are you going to have a relationship with Jesus or whoever you're, you know, projecting as a deity or whatever. And that helped me, you know, I, I have dreams of Jim and, and Ray sometimes, and I feel connected to them. I, I know that um, those quotations you're talking about, those were, uh, I've read George's philosophy about that. It's quite moving the way he would describe how, you know, he wasn't with John every day and maybe he wouldn't see him for a couple of years in those later years, but that, that didn't necessarily deafen or dampen the thing that they they had. Well, I mean, uh, the Beatles and the Doors are two private clubs, uh, but we are forever grateful to our fans who who get what we are up to. Well, it's a, a wonderful journey that I keep loving to go on again and again and again. Um, you know, this is such a dark time every year and. This year is a, an anniversary of sorts of the 40th anniversary of of John's murder. Do you remember when you learned about that? Oh, I sure do. I remember going to a, a, a vigil that night in Century City in L.A. Everybody had candles out. And it's, it's also Jim's birthday, December 8th. So there's a, a little light in that darkness. One of the last things he said when he was at the record plant and they were working on Walking on Thin Ice just blows me away. Um, when they had the mixes done, he looks at Yoko and he says, this is the direction. <laughs> yeah, he's a seeker, you know, looking forward, curious. What's out there? Yeah, hey, don't rest on your laurels. Proud of your laurels, but uh, I, I want to continue the road. And keep painting in your closet, you listeners. I mean, making a living off your art is, is wonderful. But uh, also getting in the same space, uh, you kind of get a little bit of infinity. You know, when you're doing it, usually you, you notice, oh, wow, half an hour has gone by. Well, that's because you were involved in this, this ritual. It's very uh, fulfilling. It sure is, John. There's nothing more powerful than 
reaching for infinity, and finding that artistic fulfillment. Thanks so much for being here. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.